KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Nearly five years ago, 11 people were murdered, six more injured in a mass shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. This summer, the shooter learned his fate. CBS News special report breaking news from Pittsburgh, where a jury has just recommended the death penalty for the man who killed 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in 2018. Robert Bowers. This was the first death sentence handed down by a federal jury since 2019. But there's a catch. The Department of Justice has put a moratorium on executions. When the death penalty was formally adopted, it was meant to be the strongest form of recourse in the justice system, the ultimate deterrent to committing the worst kinds of crime. Over time, views on the death penalty have changed. It became an increasingly complicated issue that raised a lot of questions. For every 8.12 executions in the United States, somebody's been exonerated. That's an appalling rate of error. Robert Dunham is the director of the Death Penalty Policy Project, special counsel at Phillips Black, and adjunct professor of death penalty law at Temple University. Beyond moral and practical dilemmas posed by the death penalty, Dunham has spent a lot of time thinking about an even bigger issue. Does it really do anything for the victims and their families? Does it bring any closure? What we found is that the death penalty system re-victimizes family members of the murdered victim. What we need to be doing is to provide meaningful victim services. I'm Matt Leon, and today on KYW News Radio in depth on the heels of the Tree of Life verdict and analysis of the death penalty in the United States today. Where is it used? Where has it been abandoned? And can a more human focused approach really be a viable alternative? Can you just kind of give us a quick, like, primer of the history of the death penalty and how we got to where we are today? In the United States, the modern history of the death penalty starts in 1972, when the United States Supreme Court struck down every death penalty statute in the country. There were nine different opinions, so there was no one thing that told us what the problem was. But it came down to, for the majority of justices, that the death penalty was being imposed in a manner that was arbitrary and capricious. Uh, Justice Potter Stewart said it was arbitrary like being struck by lightning. And so after that, the states began enacting new statutes, not quite sure what was going to be found constitutional or unconstitutional. And Pennsylvania enacted a statute over the veto of then Governor Schapp in uh, in 1974, a statute that created two trials, a trial for guilt or innocence, and then a separate penalty trial at which the state had to prove what are called aggravating circumstances, something that made a case worse than just murder. And the defendant had an opportunity to present reasons for life called mitigating circumstances. But the statute limited what you could consider as reasons for life. And so it was struck down as a result of some decisions from the Supreme Court in 1976. The state then enacted a new death penalty statute in September of 1978, And again, it was vetoed by Governor Schaap, and again, the veto was overridden. So that brings us to today and the modern Pennsylvania death penalty statute. There have been 467 cases in which the death sentence has been imposed in Pennsylvania in the past 50 years. And of those, more than 300 have been overturned because of constitutional problems, mostly because of ineffective representation. And only three executions have been carried out. So the statute has been, in everybody's judgment, a monumental failure. Question is, with Governor Wolf and then Governor Shapiro imposing moratoria on executions, what are we really doing with it now? A moratorium, this is just basically the governor saying it's like a hold? 
it's a bit more nuanced. The governor has certain powers, and he doesn't have others. The power that the governor has is to grant reprieves, uh, which is to say he or she can stop executions from happening. You can do that in individual cases, or as Governor Wolf said, uh, he created this policy where he was going to grant reprieves across the board, and that became known as the moratorium. The fact of a moratorium doesn't stop cases from moving forward in the system. So capital trials still continue. Capital appeals still continue. People are getting their death sentences overturned in the courts. People are getting exonerated. We now have 11 people who are wrongly convicted and sentenced to death who've been exonerated. District attorneys in some counties are still pursuing the death penalty. That raises a whole range of questions, but it's the same thing that we've seen in states like California and with the U.S. government right now. There's a federal moratorium on executions, but as everyone saw uh, earlier this year, the Pittsburgh synagogue killing case was capitally pursued and a death sentence was imposed. In a situation like Pennsylvania, where there's a moratorium, and you said all the the machinery of pursuing these cases continues, like, what is the point if the eventual sentence would not be carried out? Why go through the machinations of pursuing it? Realistically, the only point of pursuing the death penalty with Pennsylvania's history and during this moratorium uh, is for political reasons. That means we've seen this in California. We, we see this in other states that have moratoria. You end up with prosecutors who are beating their chest about being tough on crime, and they are the ones who are seeking the death penalty. There, there haven't been executions in states that have declared moratoria on executions. Uh, what's happened in four of those seven states is the states have gone on to abolish the death penalty. And in the three that currently have the death penalty, the governor uh, of, of Oregon, who had a moratorium on executions, commuted death row. So they, they don't even have anybody on death row. The fact of the matter is using the death penalty does not drive down crime rates. Using the death penalty has no measurable impact on public safety at all. And what it does is it expends tremendous amounts of county resources and then state resources for what, in most cases, is going to end up with a case being overturned in the courts uh, and a sentence of less than death then being imposed. One of the things that I struggle with when it comes with the death penalty is we see so many cases of police misconduct, of prosecutorial misconduct even good faith mistakes, like significant mistakes, it really gives you pause because obviously there is no, oh, sorry, we were wrong on that one. We'll, we'll make it right. History and the data tells us there's a good chance that if not a good number, at least some of these are going to be wrong. There's no question. There's no question that, uh, that many of the cases are wrong. Uh, and there's no question that uh, official misconduct plays a significant role in that. There have been 195 exonerations of death row prisoners since 1972. There have been 1,575 executions in that time. And what that means is that for every, for every 8.12 executions in the United States, somebody's been exonerated. Now, that's an appalling rate of error. Uh, if we think of planes reaching their final destination uh, and for every nine planes that reached the destination, one of them crashed and burned. We would be doing something about it. We'd be revamping the entire system. We would be stopping those flights. 
The second factor there is official misconduct. And so when I was at the Death Penalty Information Center, we launched a study, which is still in progress, to try to figure out how extensive misconduct was. At this point, uh, we have identified more than 650 cases in which death sentences were overturned because of police or prosecutorial misconduct. And that is more than 7% of all the death sentences that have been imposed in the United States in the past 50 years. And what's even more disturbing is when it comes to the courts and issues of prosecutorial and police misconduct, the courts grant relief, that is, they overturn a conviction or they overturn a sentence in only about a quarter of those cases, which gives us an estimate that probably 30 percent of all of the death penalty sentences that have been imposed in the last half century have been produced in part because of official misconduct. We were talking off the air about how many death penalty cases were kind of concentrated in certain areas, but we have seen some fascinating trends specifically in these places that kind of also are what we're seeing nationally. Kind of dig into, and Philadelphia is a huge part of that. When we talk about the decline of the death penalty nationally, Philadelphia is is a classic example. When I looked at the death sentences imposed across the United States, right now, 1.2% of the counties in the United States account for more than half of everybody on death row. And only about 2.5% of the counties in the United States account for half of all the death sentences imposed in the U.S. in the last 50 years. And when I dug into the numbers a little bit deeper, uh, I noticed that there were certain counties that really stood out. Sometimes you would get, most counties impose one or no death sentences in, in a given year. But there were four counties that accounted for 31 of the 33 most death sentences imposed in any year in the last 50 years. They were Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Cook County, which is Chicago, and Harris County, which is Houston. And what was interesting about this is that since the death penalty peaked in the 1990s and began to drop, there have been significant changes in who gets elected as prosecutors. So we've seen that these big producers of death penalties have elected people who are reform prosecutors or have gotten rid of the death penalty altogether. And we've gone from more than 300 death sentences per year throughout the mid-1990s to under 50, under 30. This will probably be another year of fewer than 30 death sentences, a 90% reduction nationwide. And a lot of that is because of the reform prosecutors. Another thing about Philadelphia that is instructive about what goes on around the country is the quality of representation. Because when people get sentenced to death, the thing that that most drives whether they get sentenced to death is the political attitudes of the prosecutor. But then the most important thing after that is the quality of counsel. And Philadelphia has accounted for more than 200 people sentenced to death. The Philadelphia Public Defender's Office has never had a death sentence imposed. And what that tells you is when you have quality counsel with the resources to humanize the defendant, juries are unlikely to impose the death penalty. Counsel makes a difference and the arbitrariness of who it is that you get appointed and how poorly they get compensated or how poorly they were trained or what resources they do or don't have or what they understand or don't understand uh, about mental health. That is what determines who gets sentenced to death. In most instances, it isn't 
how bad the murder is. We don't have to look farther than the Aurora County, uh, the Aurora um, movie theater shooting uh, or the Parkland shooting. Uh, you can see that in extremely, extremely horrible murders where there is quality representation and jurors understand how mentally ill the defendant actually is, jurors vote for life. So Philadelphia has been an experiment in the quality of counsel, and it shows that counsel, not the crime, often determines whether you get sentenced to death or not. And Philadelphia has been part of the national experiment in reform prosecutors. We need to take a break. We will have more with Robert Dunham right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. We are back on KYW News Radio in depth, continuing our conversation about the death penalty with Robert Dunham, director of the Death Penalty Policy Project and adjunct professor of death penalty law at Temple University. Do we have any indication that the death penalty works as a deterrent? That's very interesting because that's one of the most powerful justifications for capital punishment. And in 1976, uh, in Gregg versus Georgia, the U.S. Supreme Court said that deterrence and retribution are the only two legitimate penological factors that justify the death penalty. When I was director of the Death Penalty Information Center, uh, I took a look at this issue because I, I think it's extremely important. And I looked at 30 years of data. 30 years of FBI homicide data, and 30 years of FBI data relating to the killings of police officers, because we also hear the justification for the death penalty as it's necessary to protect our police. And what I found was that across this 30-year period, the rate of murders were lower in states that did not have the death penalty than in states that had the death penalty, and the same for the killings of police officers. Now, that could have been a social phenomenon or it could have been uh, the creature of, uh, of one or two aberrant years. So I then looked at the trends, and the trends were the same. When murders went up in, uh, in states with the death penalty, they went up in states without the death penalty. There were national trends that governed. Year after year after year, there were lower rates of murder in the non-death penalty states. I then looked at the police officer killings, and what was most interesting was the rates at which police officers were killed were lowest in the states that had most recently abolished the death penalty. That makes no sense at all if the death penalty is a deterrent. And what I concluded from looking at the 30 years of data was that the death penalty has nothing to do with murder rates. Murder rates are what drive punishment. But the death penalty doesn't deter, and it certainly doesn't deter more than a long prison term or a sentence of life without parole. And with the states that recently abolished the death penalty, what the data told me was that the killings of police officers have a political dimension to them, which is to say when the legislature looks at whether it's going to keep or repeal the death penalty, there are certain factors that affect it more than others. And prosecutors and police have an enormous influence in state legislatures where there have been very few murders of police officers, and that trend has uh, persisted for years, that becomes less and less of an issue. And the legislature then looks at the death penalty as a policy, whether it's cost effective, whether it serves victims well, and so forth. And that's when states decide that they're going to repeal the death penalty. Is it strictly murder that the death penalty could be on the table for? Are there any other crimes? Through most of the U.S. history, you could get the death penalty for a variety of felonies. But in 1987, the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case called Coker versus Virginia 
that said that the death penalty was unconstitutionally disproportionate for a crime of rape in which nobody was killed. That decision was extended to cover things like kidnapping and robbery where no one was killed. There was still a challenge that was brought about cases in which a child was raped. Uh, and the United States Supreme Court later in a case called Kennedy versus Louisiana said, no, uh, that's also unconstitutional. The death penalty does not apply to crimes against individuals in which no one is killed. But with this particular U.S. Supreme Court uh, and its historic disrespect for precedent. There are signs that it may be moving away from some of the case precedent in the past. And so states like Florida have reenacted child rape death penalty statutes, and there's going to be a test coming up as to whether that is still unconstitutional. Other than life in prison, is there something we can look at to properly punish those who have done heinous crimes, but make sure where everything is is done correctly there are a lot of issues involved in that very simple question when when it comes to sentencing and what sentence is appropriate we can look at what's going on in europe and we can look at what our neighbors in canada do and uh, and, and other uh, democratic countries almost all of which have abolished the death penalty the second harshest punishment available in the united states would be harsher than any punishment available in most of the rest of the world. Most of the rest of the world doesn't even have life without parole. We've been looking at the Scandinavian approach to punishment or the approach in Germany. The law enforcement officials there are stunned at what's happening in the United States because they have been able to successfully reintegrate people who are convicted of even very, very serious crimes back into society. One of the things that this country doesn't take into consideration and ought to is the fact that most of these really horrible crimes are committed by people who are young. The brain science is telling us that the portions of the brain that deal with thinking in terms of consequences, regulating emotions, the more advanced features that make us adults don't mature in until the mid twenties and even, even a bit later. So most of the people who are committing serious crimes don't have mature brains yet. They are not grown-ups in the physiological sense. And that means that if you just take them out of society until their brains mature, that simple fact is going to significantly reduce the risk that there is going to be recidivism. A second thing that you can do is make sure that you provide meaningful rehabilitative opportunities. And what that means is job training. What that means is education, some kind of compensation so that when people come out, you have to provide them with tools to be able to come back and work productively. We've been concentrating in the United States so much on punishment that we haven't been concentrating on healing. If something were to happen to somebody in my family, in some kind of heinous crime, I wouldn't care about anything you just put on the table that is all true and when you're looking at it objectively obviously it makes a lot of sense what is the balance with the families the victims here who are never going to get their loved ones back it is absolutely the case many if not most people want to lash out after probably the worst thing that they've ever experienced no matter what you do you can never bring their loved one back the question then becomes, 
does the death penalty provide any meaningful service to uh, to victims' families? All the data show, and you know, and and, and I'm aware that uh, it 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 feels wrong when you are talking about the horrible emotional trauma of victimization and co-victimization. It feels wrong to then be talking about data. But what the numbers tell us is that only 2% of, of the family members in death penalty cases that, that go all the way to execution experience the, the phenomenon that's been labeled closure. What they usually find in a case that reaches execution is that their healing has been delayed and they still feel empty. What we found is that the death penalty system re-victimizes family members of the murdered victim. What we need to be doing is to provide meaningful victim services uh, so the healing can take place sooner and so that the family members aren't tortured by this extended legal process that more often than not results in the promise of the death penalty that the prosecutors have given them becoming an illusion. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.